Here Dominic Mierzejewski speaking. I'm a professor at the University of Łódź Faculty of International and Political Studies. I'm also a chair at the Center for Asian Affairs University-based think tank, a special dedicated research unit for monitoring and analyzing a situation in East Asia, namely China, Japan, Korean Peninsula, plus Southeast Asia. Today we start a very short discussion on China and Japan named Talking China and Talking Japan. I'm in charge of China Stories and my colleague Marcin Soha, the research fellow at the Center for Asian Affairs, will deliver his understanding on contemporary Japan. So welcome all of you to go with us and learn more about contemporary Asia. Welcome all students, all colleagues from across the world to talk with us about China and Japan. Today I will give you the very background and my understanding of the latest 70 years. As we know, the People's Republic of China enjoyed the 70th anniversary of the founding of the country and what was observed was a series of ceremonial events including grand military parades, Chairman Mao waving, uh, saying the China way, China model cannot be stopped by any external power as was declared. To a certain extent it's a very natural. China is a big country with its own history, culture and languages. But let us go back to 1949 when Chairman Mao declared the establishment of the People's Republic of China and let us go through ups and downs of the latest China's history. A lot of scholars, a lot of people debating that China has changed a lot. And it's true. If you travel Shanghai, you will find a lot of new things uh, in the city. Big buildings, uh, big companies, big money. That's really an impressive issue. The second impressive issue is the alleviation of poverty. This is also a very historical uh, thing for China. But today I want you to focus on issues that don't change much in mainland China. And today's speech is uh, divided into two big points. The first is domestic affairs and the second foreign policy. In other words, I will try to find common denominators in Chinese domestic politics over the last 70 years. The first is mass mobilization campaigns. The second, transition of power. And finally, I will touch an issue of localism in mainland China. Mass mobilization campaigns are truly a vehicle for managing and governing social stability in mainland China. Due to the fact that the Communist Party of China is still in power, they have not changed the uh, apparatus uh, model and they're using mass mobilization campaigns as a vehicle for delivering stability. If you go back to China's history, altogether Chinese people experienced more than 40 political and mass mobilization campaigns over the last seven years. Starting from the very beginning, rapid industrialization and collectivization, namely Great Leap Forward, uh, However, the policies led to the social and economic disasters, but still, it was a mobilization. Then, uh, China traveled through the Cultural Revolution. Ten years of turbulences between 1966 and 1976. A huge political and mass mobilization campaign. If you go uh, to uh, the period of reform, namely, uh, opening up and reform period sponsored by Deng Xiaoping in 1978, 
you can use also these lenses. You can also uh, look uh, through mass mobilization campaigns. This is really interesting. And now, if you look uh, into anti-corruption campaign, it's similar model of governing society. So this is kind of timeless, consistent, unchangeable in China's domestic affairs. The second issue, and I think it's important to discuss it, is transition of power. If we go back to China's history after 1949, that was a real issue for Chinese leaders to provide a very stable, solid platform for transition of power, and they failed. Namely, Liu Shaoqi. In 1960s, he was named as the successor of Chairman Mao. He died in 1968 during the Cultural Revolution period. Then we had Lin Piao, who was killed also during the Cultural Revolution in 1971, flying Moscow, probably, escaping from Beijing. Then uh, China experienced struggles between Deng Xiaoping and Hua Guofeng. Hu Yaobang also, in the late 1980s, was kind of uh, a, a successor, but also the whole story ended at Tiananmen Square, uh, 1989. And after Tiananmen, there was a consensus in party that a peaceful transition is about tenors. So each leader, starting from Jiang Zemin, had only 10 years of government. And for two decades, the peaceful transition uh, occurred in Chinese politics. However, now we have a new dynamics. Uh, this post-Tiananmen consensus, as I call it, is broken, and uh, Xi Jinping is a chairman for life. It means that this issue, as I said, transition of power, has not been changed. And uh, the next point in our today's discussion is localism in China. If you travel across the country, flying from one corner to another corner, you need to take seven-hour plane. So it's very natural that China is a very diverse country, and local interests and local uh, specificities and local culture are really important. So the very first uh, core issue for the newly formed government in 1949 was how to govern local China, how to centralize this actors coming out from a local level in order to make China a unitary state. And this problem is still there. If you talk to Canton people, uh, they speak different languages. If you travel Heilongjiang, you will find a very different perspective on China, really dependent on Russia, flying uh, central China, uh, east coast, etc. So the local community in mainland is still the most important and the government needs to acknowledge. So, summing up this part, we discussed the mass mobilization campaigns, transition of power, and localism in China. And that was about domestic affairs. The second uh, very important pillar of today's meeting is foreign policy. What is behind and what, as I said, is consistent? What is timeless in China's foreign policy? I will discuss it through three points. Equality cultural construct and economic development. The first, I mean, to a certain extent, it might be understood as a very tricky because majority of scholars debating China as a big power, Sinocentric vision. However, 
the post-opium war mentality is also there. We need to acknowledge it. And foreign policy is about bringing China back after years of humiliation. Definitely, the foreign policy decision makers, they followed Sun Yat-sen's statement that he said, China hopes to be an equal member of international community. And then, uh, 1949, when Chairman Mao took power, he discussed equality, justice, and materialism that places China on an equal footing with the family of developing world and family of uh, of um, global community. And it was uh, a very important factor, a, a driven factor, behind Mao's policy towards the Soviet Union. He thought that in a socialist camp, China would be treated equally by the Soviet Union. And the Chinese policymakers sponsored what they called Ibn Dao policy, one-sided policy. Sooner or later, he discovered that the Soviet Union has mentality of the empire, and it's not very about bringing China as an equal partner, but rather bringing China as a small brother. There is a popular saying in China, Lao Da Ge. It means that the Soviet Union is usually called as a big brother of China. And if you look into uh, China relations with developing world at the moment, uh, I believe it's very important to recognize this. The China is is looking for equal status together with other developing states. Of course, it's not in the contrary of China's interest, but the priority from my understanding is equality and equal member having a very difficult uh, colonial experiences with other countries in the world. The second cultural construct, China as kind of cultural continuity. So we need to recognize the continue to, uh, continuity of traditional thinking on Tianxia, all under the heaven. According to Chinese philosophers and also Chinese school of IR, uh, especially Zhao Tingyang from Chinese Academy of so Social Sciences, the world is without borders and is based on civilizational aspect of China's Tianxia, extremely contrary to existing global order. The Western world, as they said, is backed by narrow, as said by Zhao Tingyang, nation-state mentality alliances and unions of nation-state, while the Chinese framework covers all and represents the whole world society. Let me quote Zhao Tingyang. He said, it refers to an ideal moral and political order at the meeting of non-territorial boundaries. The whole world is governed by a sage, according to the principles of rights and virtues. So definitely, if you look back into 19th century, you will clearly find that it was a clash between civilization and nation-state, between China and Western Europe. And the final point here is economic development. China is trying to utilize global resources. At the very beginning, in the 1950s, Chairman Mao tried also to utilize global resources coming from the Soviet Union. Deng Xiaoping debated that China needs to be global in order to achieve economic power and economic development. So definitely this, two, this pillar is very important when it comes to China's global behavior. And as I said, it's timeless. It's kind of consistent. And if you look to Jiang Zemin policy, for example, who announced global strategy, go global strategy, it's not only investments, but also it's a very important pillar of seeking the global resources in order to develop China, to develop Chinese companies, to develop Chinese economy.
And from this perspective, if you look into Belt and Road narratives and Belt and Road concepts sponsored by Xi Jinping, it should be seen as a continuation of Jiang Zemin's policy. So we discussed these equality issues, cultural issues, and economic development, and its kind of continuity. So my advice here is to you all, to all of you, is try to find the things that has not changed much in mainland China. Let me sum up this short speech with uh, the common saying from Wu Jingzi, the Qing dynasty novelist, author of The Scholars. And um, I'm sorry, my pronunciation in Chinese might not satisfy Chinese people, but I will try. It's It's uh, It means life has its ups and downs. And for every 30 years, the river has changed its curves. So it means that we have 30-year cycles. And if you look back, if you analyze China's history, you will find these 30-year cycles as a vehicle for China's development. Thank you for being with us. Keep in touch next time. Thank you very much.